If you guys have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. And I just want to reiterate um, that we are so glad for everybody who meets with us on Sunday mornings, um, whether in person or online. It's awesome to have you. I especially want to give a warm welcome to those of you who are here for the very first time. Um, man, we, it's, a, it's a privilege to have first-time guests with us. And we know that some of the folks who are joining us for the first time are people from Builders for Christ who have come in to help us build our building. If you're with Builders for Christ, can you just raise your hand real quick? Uh, any of you who are in this service? Like none? None? They all came to the first service. Okay, well, if they would have been here for this service, they wouldn't have had any seats. Okay, so... Okay, so here's the thing. Guys, isn't it amazing to see all the work that Builders for Christ has accomplished so far? So here's what I was thinking. So, um, by the way, if you don't know who Builders for Christ is, Builders for Christ is an organized group of volunteers who come here over the course of this summer to help us build our building out there. Um, We're doing this mostly by volunteer labor, and so they're sending teams to meet with us um, and serve uh, with us week by week from now till August, and guys, they are getting it done. Let me show you a picture. Here's a picture of what our property looked like two Sundays ago. Isn't that crazy? Here's a picture from this morning. Boom. All over the course of two weeks. So church family, Whenever you see our Builders for Christ volunteers who are on site here throughout the week, come, give them a hug, give them a high five, give them a glass of water because it gets really hot out there. Bring them a couple ibuprofen. They'll probably need it. Um, But this is a ton of work that they are doing with us, and I'm just so thankful. Um, Today, we are going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts. Um, So, you know, we left off last Sunday in uh, chapter 6. We were introduced to a man named Stephen. And I just want to give a public shout out to Rob Slofman, our student ministries director, for bringing God's word last Sunday. Um, Pray for Rob this week. He's leaving at the end of this service. He's going to be leaving with 74 students and leaders to go to summer camp, and they're going to need all the prayers that we can give them, right? So let's pray for them. We know that the Lord works in a special way in the hearts of our students when they are at camp, away from the distractions of the world, and they can really open up their hearts uh, and their spiritual ears to what God is saying. So pray for our students as they are at camp uh, this week. But last week, Rob told us that this man, Stephen, was introduced as a man who was full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He was one of the seven Greek-speaking men who were chosen by the early church to serve the Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food and resources. Um, So we might say that Stephen was one of the early deacons in the church. What's interesting is that wasn't the only role Stephen played. Stephen was also a preacher Um, As Stephen preached in Acts 6, he preached to a a group called the freedmen, and those freedmen really decided to oppose him. These freedmen were Jews who at some point in time had been taken as Roman slaves, and then they were granted back their freedom. They eventually started their own synagogue in Jerusalem. They did not like the fact that Stephen and the other disciples of Jesus were coming and preaching Christ and making converts, and so they opposed him. And part of their opposition was to bring false witnesses, to make false accusations against him. And so what they did in Acts 6 was they seized Stephen, they brought him before the public council called the Sanhedrin, a 70-member judiciary group led by the high priest, And they, in front of that council, accused Stephen, the preacher, of preaching blasphemy. And they said, Stephen blasphemed in two ways. They said he was blaspheming against Moses and against the temple. 
And since both Moses and the temple were viewed as the Jews as coming uh, from God, then they said, he's also blaspheming against God, right? So according to the Jewish law, you know, uh, that was blasphemy and they accused Stephen of blaspheming in his preaching. That's um, what we covered in Acts chapter 6. Now, today's text, we're going to cover all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. So it'll only take two hours. Everybody will be good, okay? Don't worry. In the text that we're going to go through, Stephen is going to respond to these accusations from the freedmen. As he speaks, he's going to cover all sorts of like historical topics and facts and circumstances. And it may not make sense to you unless you know the big picture of what Stephen's doing. He's responding to a couple specific accusations that he blasphemed against Moses, that he blasphemed against the temple, ultimately blaspheming against God. All right, so that's what this long 60 verse chapter chapter 7 is all about so here's how we're going to work through it today lord willing i'm going to preach all the way from chapter 7 verse 1 to chapter 8 verse 3 that's like what 60 some verses so uh buckle up buttercup because we're going to be going fast okay and we're going to hustle through this i want to make several teaching points as we work our way through we're going to end with four personal takeaways for us with application and here's what i believe even though we're going to be hustling through this long stretch of teaching with a lot of history uh a lot of details about the jewish world uh the ancient world of the jews here's what i believe god's word never returns void if you open up your heart i believe that this portion of scripture god breathed is useful for your training in righteousness uh and so listen closely uh and we will get into god's word i believe the holy spirit will speak to you So let's get into chapter 7. Stephen, imagine him sitting in front of the council, included the high priest, and it says this in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? Are these accusations about your blasphemy? Stephen, are they so? And so Stephen has an opportunity to respond, and here's what he says, verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. So he appeals to their shared Jewish heritage. You are my brothers. You on the council, you are respected fathers. He was a Jew like them. He says this in verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you, council members, high priest, into the land which you are now living. So, what do we have here? Here's what's going on. Stephen starts by quoting Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, go out to a land that I will show you. Um, and this is just the first of a, a bunch of scripture quotes that Stephen gives right here while he's on trial. These are all coming from the top of his head. He has these passages memorized. It's not like he has his Bible out and he's just kind of getting it open and reading these. This is how much this man knew God's word. He was able to recite it like this. Keep in mind uh, the way that God's word had filled his heart so that it could just come out freely as we listen to the rest of Stephen's response. But in Genesis 12, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. Now, some of you may be like uh, geographical wizards and you may remember your geography classes from ninth grade or whatever, but most of us may not remember where Mesopotamia is. So, you know me, I'm map guy. I like maps. Let's put the map on the screen and see what we're looking at here. So Mesopotamia, as you can see, is just northwest of the Persian Gulf. Eventually, 
Uh, Abraham moved to Haran, which is toward the northernmost part of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, After his dad died, God took Abraham over uh, further west to the land of Canaan and uh, in the area around Jerusalem. So there's a lot of history behind all of Abraham's travels and the way that he got there. But what I want you to notice right now is the location of Mesopotamia and that God, the scripture says, God met Abraham there. The important thing to note is that Mesopotamia is not near Jerusalem. It's a long ways away. It's not near the temple. It's not near the place where these Jewish council members are. And this is going to become very important later on in Stephen's message. So Abraham moved from Mesopotamia, eventually ended near Jerusalem, where Stephen and the council members uh, were now living. And it says this in verse 5. Yet he, speaking of God, gave him, Abraham, No inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So again, lots of history here, but what Stephen is referring to is... Um, This reference to Abraham's offspring, that would be the Hebrew Israelites from the Old Testament. What do we know about them? They eventually came under captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And what did God end up doing to the Egyptians? He ended up striking them with plagues and judgment. And eventually, the people of God did indeed come out of Egypt and go uh, make their way to Canaan where they could worship God. So on to verse 8. And he, God gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So again, just pause and reflect. Catch what Stephen is doing. He is affirming the history of the patriarchs that were so precious to the Jews. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is showing that he knows and supports the, the record and the history of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Because remember, he's in front of a council and this council is accusing him and they're saying, you disrespect Moses, you disrespect his teaching. And he's here, what's he doing? He's affirming the historicity of Genesis and Exodus, which as you know, were written down by Moses. So he's responding to those accusations of blaspheming Moses. On to verse nine. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. So you remember the story of Joseph, right? Where his brothers, who are now being referred to as the patriarchs, the, um, the early fathers of the Jewish people, you know, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. I want to just kind of pause right now and tell you where Stephen's about to go in his sermon. He's setting up a couple parallels right here. First, he's going to show how Joseph was rejected. Then he's going to show how Moses was rejected. And eventually he's going to show how that's a parallel with Jesus and the way that Jesus was rejected. So if I could summarize all of what Stephen is doing here for the next 40 verses or so, here's just a simple way to remember this. Stephen is showing how Israel constantly rejected the man that God selected. Okay, that's what's going on here. 
Stephen is showing that Israel constantly rejected the man that God selected. So in verse 9, he starts talking about Joseph, how God selected him, but he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And it says in verse 9, but God was with him. Verse 10, and God rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Again, lots that could be shared here. And if you want to read this full story, just go back to your Bible and read Genesis chapter 40 through 50. When you read these stories, what you're going to see is early on, the total number of the people of Israel was a small number, like 75 people from Abraham's descendants. But that's Genesis chapter 40 through 50. But by the time you get to Exodus, years have gone by and what's happened? Now the the Israelites have multiplied and and had children, and they had children. And so by the time we get to the book of Exodus, the Israelites are like over a million people strong by this time. So like I said before, what I want you to do is pay attention to all the locations and the places that Stephen is mentioning. He's not just mentioning Jerusalem, where he and the council is, but he's talking about Mesopotamia, and Ur, and Haran, and Egypt, and Shechem. And what's going on here is Stephen is showing that God is at work in other places outside of Jerusalem. And all that's going to tie into a big point that's coming later. So pay attention. So he's affirmed the scriptural record of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And now he's about to move on to Moses. Here's what he says in verse 17. Stephen says, But as the time of the promise drew near, that's the time when Abraham's offspring would finally go into the promised land and possess Canaan, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Again, over a million. Until there arose arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He, this new king, right? He dealt shrewdly with our race and did what? Forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Guys, what is Stephen doing right here? Stephen is identifying with a very tragic part of Jewish history. He was standing in solidarity, so to speak, in unity with the people of Israel as part of their past included these wicked acts by this Egyptian king. When that Egyptian king, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 1, ordered that all the Hebrew boys of a young age, you know, that they, if they were about to give birth to a boy, that those boys should be put to death um, as soon as they were delivered. Stephen is saying, I know that that horror was done to us. Which, as a little bit of a side note, really should make us stop and think. As awful as that is, it should make us stop and think about the condition of the United States of America. No one has to come and kill our babies by force because so many of our people take them voluntarily and kill them in abortion clinics. 
Or if you're in New York City or some of these other places, you don't even have to kill them before they're out of the womb. You just can kill them you know, after they're delivered, which is atrocious. It's horrible. It's wicked and it's evil. And many in our country and many in our country's leadership have lost the fear of God just like the Egyptian kings. And may God have mercy on us in this country. We need more people like the Hebrew midwives who will work wisely and courageously to oppose the killing of children in these terrible ways. This is what's being talked about here as Stephen is referencing Moses, standing in solidarity with the tragedy, with the people that have experienced such tragedy at the hands of Egypt. Verse 20, at this time, during the time when all these killing of infants was going on. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. All right, so here we start to see the specifics of Moses' might and the things that he did through the power of God. I want you to see that Stephen is honoring and affirming the, um, the valuable position that Moses played in God's plan. He's not blaspheming Moses. Verse 23, when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 2. Verse 25 says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses came, Stephen is saying, Moses came to his people with an open heart of love and care, but he's not accepted by his brothers. He's rejected. His Hebrew brothers see him as a threat, and they say, oh, who, who do you think you are? You're going to come and try to be judge and ruler over us? They don't see him as loving, so they, they reject him. Because why? What's the big idea? Israel constantly rejected the man who God selected. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, so here now Moses is about 80 years old or so, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are now in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, for I will send you, Moses, to Egypt. Again, there's so much that could be preached and taught here, but the point of this passage is that Stephen is... Speaking highly of Moses, right? He's, he's recapping Moses' life. He's saying the same thing over and over again. He's saying, God chose Moses. God gave Moses a message. He's affirming the value of Moses among God's work in the people of, of uh, 
of Israel and in their history. So then Stephen says this in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the hand of the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So Stephen is recapping the the mighty works of God through the life of Moses. He did signs and wonders, you know, God used Moses to announce the plagues and have his staff turn into a snake and, you know, used his staff to touch the ground before the Red Sea and then the Red Sea parted and through Moses, water came from a rock and through Moses and God's work through him, manna came down from heaven. God's strength was at work in Moses, but Stephen is just showing over and over again that the man who God selected was the man that Israel rejected. And again, he's being accused of blasphemy against moses but he's making it clear that he believes moses is indeed a man sent from god selected by him verse 37 says this this is the moses who said to the israelites god will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers so pay attention to this because stephen has reaffirmed that he supports moses he also points out that Part of Moses' teaching was that God would send another prophet like Moses. A prophet like me, Moses says. Well, who was Moses referring to? Jesus. Jesus. So if you're going to value another prophet like Moses, if you're going to value Moses' teaching, Moses said, be on the lookout for another guy like me. And here we are with Stephen in front of a whole guys who have rejected the very one who came and was like Moses. You ever thought about how much Jesus and Moses have in common? Just think about these things. Pharaoh tried to kill Moses as a baby. Herod tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Moses gave up his royal position to come and deliver his people. Jesus gave up his heavenly position to come and deliver his people. Moses was rejected the first time he came to his people. Jesus was rejected the first time he came to his people. Moses was accepted as his second coming. Jesus will be accepted as his second coming. Moses mediated the old covenant. Jesus mediated the new covenant. Moses served as a deliverer. Jesus serves as a deliverer. Jesus was a prophet like Moses. In verse 38, Stephen continues talking about Moses. He says about Moses, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received oracles to give to us. So here, Stephen's talking about Mount Sinai when Moses went up to get the the commandments from God on the mountain, on the tablets of stone. And Stephen is saying that God's words through Moses were indeed intended for the fathers of Israel to obey. God actually gave them instruction and expected them to do this. But here's what happened, verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him. But instead they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And they said to Aaron, remember Moses' brother, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and we were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship um, of the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. And here Stephen quotes the prophet Amos. As it was written by Amos, did you bring 
to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, they didn't. They worshiped other gods. Verse 43, God says, You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. So here's what Stephen's doing. Stephen is saying, guys, Jewish council, we're, we're both Jews, but our, but our ancestors really messed up. They had the man of God, Moses, doing the works of God and his miracles, delivering the word of God, the law, but yet they rejected him. And instead they, they made idols, they, they, they made images of their own to worship. And, and Stephen says, man, God delivered them over to their own desires. He let them worship these false gods. And one of those false gods was a god named uh, Moloch. The, the, Moloch became known as um, the god of shameful deeds. And that's because you know what people did to worship Moloch, or as he is referred to in other parts of the scripture, Molech? What they would do to worship Molech is that they would practice child sacrifice. The same Israelites that were once horrified when Egypt tried to kill their infants were now giving up their infants and killing them in worship of this false god. They would worship a god that accepted child sacrifice. How could Israel stray this far, you guys? How could they worship a god this vile? Here's how. They rejected the man of God who did the works of God and delivered the word of God. Israel rejected the man that God had selected. And in these verses, Stephen has been addressing this first accusation against him. Stephen, you blasphemed Moses. And Stephen, he's saying, no, I I affirm Moses. But our fathers have rejected him. Now, Starting um, here, Stephen continues, but he addresses the second accusation against him. The second accusation was that he not only blasphemed against Moses, but also against the temple. So let's see what Stephen says about the temple. Look at verse 44. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of witness, talking about the tabernacle, the big tent that Israel would set up and tear down as they wandered throughout the wilderness. They had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that uh, they had seen, right? In other words, God gave him the blueprints on how to make the tabernacle. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So as Israel was conquering up nations and taking over lands, they just traveled with the tabernacle. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, right? So David wanted to build the temple. But verse 47 says, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So again, Stephen is saying, David wanted to build God's house, but Solomon ended up doing it. He's affirming the teaching of the Old Testament Jewish scripture. It's the origins of the temple. Nothing super controversial here until we get to verse 48. Verse 48, Stephen says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2, where God says this, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? 
Remember, they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming against the temple. Now, why would they make that accusation? It's because of this. It's because in the minds of the Jewish leaders, God was bound to the physical temple in Jerusalem. The presence of God was bound to the physical temple in Jerusalem. But Stephen has been showing them, using the very words of Moses and the prophets, that God, God's presence has never been bound to the temple. He has never been present only in this one building built by human hands. What has Stephen been saying? God was present with Abraham in Mesopotamia. God was present with Joseph in Egypt. God was present with Moses in Haran and Midian and Sinai. God was present with the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. And he was present with Joshua in the battles uh, against other nations in other lands. So Stephen's point is absolutely clear. The temple was uh, surely a special place But God's presence was never limited to the temple in Jerusalem. And he is calling out these Jewish leaders about their misunderstandings about the temple and the presence of God. And this leads Stephen to give them some very loving pastoral words in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. I think I'll just start next Sunday's sermon with those words. Here we go. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, you, you who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Here's what Stephen is saying, that the messenger God selected has constantly been the one that Israel rejected. Joseph was rejected. Moses was rejected. The prophets were rejected. And now Jesus, the righteous one, had been rejected. So he's looking at this group of leaders, right? He's looking at these, this group of leaders, and he's saying, um, you are stubborn like your ancestors. You may, have, you may have the presence of the temple, but you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. You may be circumcised in your physical body, but you are not circumcised in your heart toward God. And like your ancestors, you rejected Jesus, the man who God had selected. So what's their response? Everyone said amen and repented. And thank you, preacher, for opening our our eyes to these wonderful truths. Here's what happened. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, which is an interesting phrase, right? But we've seen it happen when you just get so mad and you clench your jaw and rage just builds up in your heart. But it says this in verse 55, but he full of the Holy Spirit. So they're full of rage and sin and Peter is and Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And just as a little side note, I love that verse 55 says that Jesus was standing. Stephen saw Jesus standing. Almost every other time that you read about Jesus being near God in heaven. Almost every other time in Scripture, it says that he's seated at the right hand of God. Here, Stephen says, I saw him, I see him standing. 
I wonder sometimes if it's because that Jesus knew that Stephen was about to be the first martyr for the Christian faith and stood to welcome him home. That was Jesus' response to Stephen, perhaps, but the council's was much different. And verse 57 says, But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. So here are these 70 councilmen, dignified, distinguished men, and here they are acting like rebellious little children, grinding their teeth, plugging their ears, yelling over top of Stephen, rushing at him like a band of elementary bullies, because they hated what he was saying. They hated what he was saying. So here's what they did, verse 58. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we're going to learn more about him soon in the upcoming chapters. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we've heard these words before, haven't we? When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, dying, saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. In Stephen's moment of greatest difficulty, he's entrusting himself to the Lord Jesus. And falling to his knees, verse 60 says, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, we've heard this before with Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Here is Stephen With stones crushing his body, taking his life, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, the scripture said, he fell asleep. And he died. The Lord Jesus helped him die. And the scripture says he fell asleep. But here's the truth. One day, Stephen is going to awake and rise. When the trumpet of the Lord sounds... And the dead in Christ rise first. Stephen is going to rise. And those of us who are alive and remain, we're going to meet with the saints, including Stephen, in the air. And together, we will forever be with the Lord. Guys, this is the first martyr in the history of the church. Chapter 8. I just want to touch on these first three verses. It says this in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. So here we get introduced to Saul, a second young man in the story, very different from young man Stephen. Here we have Saul, and he stands by approving of Stephen's martyr, and he hears Stephen cry out to Jesus. And as we're going to see in the upcoming chapters, Saul becomes converted. He becomes a believer. God changes his name to Paul. And what happens? He becomes one of the greatest preachers that the world has ever known. And God, but before he's converted, God speaks to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here we have the first instance, recorded instance of Saul participating in the killing of a Christian. And from there, the persecution continues. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Guys, from here, there's a shift in the book of Acts. The location of the story 
starts to change from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And if you remember, what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus wanted the gospel to spread outwardly that way. How did the gospel go from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria? God used the suffering of the saints to advance the gospel there. God is sovereign even over the suffering of his people. So we're going to get into more of that as we go ahead. But today's message ends the first section in the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 in the ministry in Jerusalem. Next week we're going to start picking up in chapter 8 through 11 where we talk about their witness in Judea and Samaria. And I'm, about, I'm already over time. So let me just end with briefly touching on some quick personal takeaways for us, okay? I, we have covered so much ground. A lot of words here, but I believe that God's word isn't just meant to be read or interpreted or understood. It's meant to be applied, right? It touches our lives. So how does this apply to us? Just four quick things I want to mention. Number one, church family, be ready to share why you believe what you believe. Be ready to share why you believe what you believe. Stephen was asked to give a defense. He gave it because he knew God's word and he was ready to explain it. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense of anyone who asks you for the reasons that you have hope. Guys, we need to not just know what we believe as Christians, but why we believe it so that we are ready to give a defense of our faith. Part of what we do in this church is that we offer classes on Sunday mornings that help equip you as the church to be ready to explain why you believe what you believe. It's why we offer a creation apologetics class where this particular quarter we're looking at the book of Genesis, the, really the, the first book of our Bible, and saying this is a f- part of the foundation of our faith. Let's understand Genesis and be able to talk about why we believe it. It's why we offer classes like Theology for Everyone, where we take a comprehensive look at all the doctrines of Scripture, and we say, yes, here are the major tenets of the Christian faith, and here's why we believe them according to the Scriptures. I would really encourage you guys to sign up for one of those classes and try to participate if you can. Because we need to be ready to share why we believe what we believe. Takeaway number two, church family, this is very particular from this passage. We need to view our new building with the right perspective. It is exciting that we're building a new building. But what is a big principle that we've learned from our passage today? God's presence does not, it's not limited by the walls of a building. I'm excited. I can't wait to worship in there. And I hope that God's presence is felt strongly and powerfully. But here's the thing. We we cannot make an idol out of our building. It's just a resource for ministry because what do we know? As Scott Dixon so carefully and rightly reminded us out on the slab on our worship event on Thursday night. The temple of God is no longer a building or a structure. God's spirit now lives within the hearts of his people. So where we go, we take the presence of God with us. Whether it's over to that church building or in this church building or driving out of this parking lot or in our homes or going to work tomorrow, we take the presence of God with us there. So let's thank the Lord for our building, but let's view it with the right perspective. Number three, church family, we need to remember those who are still being persecuted around the world. Stephen was the first martyr, but he wasn't the last one. All through church history, people have died for their faith in Jesus, and it's still happening today. Do not close your eye to it. Do not turn a blind eye to the persecution 
that's going on around the world. Praise God for our freedoms. But let's remember, this is not reality for so many believers around the world. Let's remember those who are still being persecuted. And the last takeaway, I'll just say this. Church family, those who are here, you may not even be part of the family of God yet. Here's what I would say. Do not harden your heart to the truth of Jesus. This story, this account in Acts chapter 7 is people who were religious, Jewish council members, people who were often in the temple. Their hearts were hard toward Jesus Christ. You may be religious, you may come to church, you may be busy in religious activities and praying and reading your your scriptures and all that, but listen, your heart has got to be open to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't reject the truth of Jesus when you hear it. He was the Son of God sent into the world to save sinners, sinners like me and you and all of us, and He died on the cross to take the punishment from our sins, and He rose from the grave after three days to prove that He was who He said He was, the Son of God sent into the world to be our Savior. And if you want your sins to be forgiven, and if you want to have eternal life, and if you do not want to be condemned to hell forever, then you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do not harden your heart to the truth about Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, an American preacher in the 1800s, used to say this, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So it is with the truth of Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that your heart would melt and not be hardened. Let's pray. Father, we have covered a lot of Scripture today, a lot of history a lot of content. Now, Lord, I ask that you would keep your promise and not let your word return void or empty. Lord, let it fill up our hearts today. Touch someone's heart today, Lord, with the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that we would be ready and willing to respond however you are calling us to respond, especially those who may have had a hard heart toward Jesus. I pray today you would make their hearts soft and that they would receive the truth of Jesus Christ and receive him into their life as Lord and Savior. It's in his great name that I pray. Amen.